Hello, everyone. I'm Christy Risk, Senior Editor at Genome Web, and I'll be your moderator for today. The title of today's webinar is Uncovering Genomic Evidence of SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Reinfection, and our sponsor is Kyogen. Our panelist for today is Dr. Joel Savinsky, Principal at Theogen Consulting, and Dr. Leif Schauser, Associate Director of Global Product Management for Biomedical Genomics at Kyogen. You can type in a question at any time during the webinar. You can do this through the Q&A panel, which appears on the right side of the webinar screen. And if you look to the tray at the bottom of your window, you'll see a series of widgets to enhance your webinar experience. And with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Savinsky. Please go ahead. Great, thank you, Christy, and, and, and thank you, Light, for the uh, invitation to talk today. Um, what I'm gonna talk about today was the, the work uh, that I was involved with at the Nevada State Public Health Laboratory and uh, looking at one of the, the first confirmed uh, reinfection cases internationally and the first one in the U.S. Um, you can see the title there. And the first slide I'm gonna put up just the legal disclaimer for Kyogen, and then Here's our overview. So I'm gonna give a little bit of the background about US public health, uh, you know, and their NGS activities prior to the pandemic, and then dive into, you know, the early pandemic and the reinfection story, and then go more into the NGS activities, kind of the mid to, to late pandemic, if this is considered, God willing, late pandemic right now, and maybe what the, the post-pandemic vision looks like. So if I go back in time just to 2019, so right before the pandemic, um, you know, I've been involved in systems biology for a couple decades, but in public health bioinformatics and NGS for about five years. And, you know, right before the, the pandemic, um, public health was really embracing NGS and bioinformatics, but it was happening um, at, a, at a slower rate than it is right now. You had a lot of work going on with uh, predominantly bacterial pathogens. Um, many of you might be familiar with PulseNet for enteric uh, surveillance and the successes they're having in detecting smaller outbreaks and detecting them earlier using NGS bioinformatics. There's a lot of other projects in Legionella and HAIs, um, but there's very, very little metagenomics in the year 2019 in public health. And there might be some small pilot projects that public health labs are uh, testing out and there's pretty minimal viral sequencing. You know, there's gonna be some HEPA, some norovirus, other pilot projects for measles and mumps, but no system-wide capabilities for viral sequencing. Furthermore, from a platform perspective in, in public health, you know, there was one major um, manufacturer involved in sequencing instruments for a lot of public health labs. It was predominantly Illumina, predominantly the MySeq instrumentation. Uh, very little Oxford Nanopore or Clear Labs of the other types of um, companies that you hear about today. And, um, you know, most of those other technologies were more in kind of the research space. And, you know, looking forward, maybe in a couple of years, we'll have these uh, routinely in a public health laboratory. And so against that, that backdrop, when you go into 2020 and you have the beginning of this pandemic, and then, uh, you know, public health laboratories and universities and the international community start sequencing, um, you know, in the U.S., what was the, the rationale for the sequencing of SARS-CoV-2? And, you know, one of the things I don't have on here is I have a missing acknowledgement where some of this um, came from the Genomic Epi Toolkit, which is referenced on slide 21, if you have the PDF and you'll see it later. Um, but, you know, what was the rationale for sequencing SARS-CoV-2 in the U.S.? Well, there, there's kind of two ways you can look at that. One is that the national level, another one's at a, a state and local level. Well, at the, at the national level, you're definitely looking at strain surveillance, right? And I think a lot of us that are familiar with this field, we can remember the, the early stories of the first spike protein mutation uh, that became well-known, which is the D614G. Um, you know, that was obviously detected through a lot of this genomic surveillance and bioinformatics. Um, and you also wanted, you know, to sequence the rationale to help guide diagnostic and vaccine development. And then at the state and local level, you're mainly looking at uh, ways to supplement control efforts, you know, to better understand the epidemiology and identify clusters. We could think back to the, you know, what I think of as the first big outbreak in the U.S. was the nursing home in Washington. And then, you know, that's where a lot of the early sequences, if you look in GIFSAID, are from the Washington area and sequenced by the CDC. 
Um, but then also there's investigating some of these really big outbreaks or super spreader events. I believe that the Broad Institute has a paper out on a super spreader event in Boston area in early 2020. And then, uh, you know, a lot of this early pandemic, we were really focused on, you know, is, is reinfection a possibility? And NGS and bioinformatics is the tool that's going to, you know, I believe definitively show whether that's, you know, going to happen or not. So that was the rationale, but what was the status of sequencing of SARS-CoV-2 in the U.S. public health community? Well, um, for 2020, uh, as you can see from this graph, which uh, kindly the, the data was provided by Duncan McCannell. He's, he's saving many hours. He already had this data where he compiled it manually through GISAID. Uh, but if you look at genome submissions from U.S. laboratories throughout the year 2020, it's pretty linear and there's not a lot of it, right? And, and there's a reason for this where most public health laboratories, especially in the early 2020 through the summer, they were completely overwhelmed with diagnostic testing. I mean, this became a, uh, to kind of think of a meme, you know, this was kind of like a dumpster fire where it was all hands on deck. Um, you have a public health system that didn't receive the funding that it needed for a couple decades. And then they're dealing with an, an overwhelming pandemic. Um, so even if you had sequencing capacity, which most, most labs did for PulseNet, you probably didn't have the personnel available for sequencing because, you know, the, the public health labs literally had to steal every um, person who was talented in, in molecular biology to work on diagnostic, diagnostic testing. And as a result, you know, very few laboratories were sequencing SARS-CoV-2 in that spring, summer of 2020. Um, and I kind of liken it to, you know, for me, I am very focused on NGS and bioinformatics. I no longer really work in the, the diagnostic uh, section. And I can remember, you know, I work with a lot of public health laboratories. I do a lot of training in the U.S. And I can remember in spring of 2020, um, it was kind of like everybody disappeared for a couple months. You know, nobody was interested in NGS and bioinformatics because they were dealing with this pandemic. And I, I kind of liken it to, um, it's kind of like when a tsunami's coming and the, you have the drawback of the ocean, like that ebbing out. And, and I didn't realize it at the time. What I was watching was the, the drawback of NGS and bioinformatics uh, because of this tsunami event, this pandemic. And then it was going to get overwhelmed, uh, NGS and bioinformatics for this pandemic. Okay. So background, 2020. Um, so given this background, how did we even find a reinfection case in Nevada? And some of this goes to that old saying, luck favors the prepared. So at Nevada State Public Health Laboratory, they were collaborating with the University of Nevada, Reno, on a sequencing protocol for SARS-CoV-2. And this provided them with the personnel capacity for sequencing because they were not using um, state public health personnel, they were using their university collaboration. And Nevada State Public Health Laboratory, in particular Mark Pandori, uh, the director there, had also asked the epidemiologist to actively look for reinfection cases. So they knew this was a possibility. Mark has background in virology. You know, it, it really, for, for anybody in this kind of field, it wasn't really a matter of, is this a possibility? It's just, or if it's going to happen, it's a matter of when it's going to happen. And they're also very careful about preserving positive specimens for sequencing. Now, one thing, you know, I know I'm going to get questions about this at the end. And from a public, when you're thinking about these types of case studies that come out of public health work, out of public health specimens, um, public health laboratories, they're, they're not research institutes. They don't perform research. They don't perform studies. What they do is they perform testing and they can save uh, specimens. So a lot of times, you know, somebody might at the end of this uh, webinar asked me, well, was this individual the first time they were tested, you know, did they do an antibody test uh, to see if they had any antibody production? And the answer is going to be no, because, you know, that wasn't the goal of this. The goal was to diagnose them positive or negative, and you have so many specimens coming in. These are things that you can't afford to do for every specimen, and, you know, it's not going to be done. So if we get into the, the case definition, this will describe how this came about. Um, so originally, you, you have a 25-year-old uh, Latino male who had an initial symptom onset in March 25, 2020. And the initial collection date for, was April 18th, and the specimen was sent to the Nevada State Public Health Laboratory. And this is pretty routine uh, for public health. Um, 
so the, the chase investigation was completed uh, you know once the positive results were reported and it was um, reported to Washoe County Health District uh, the resolution of symptoms on the 27th and their place of employment requested test-based strategy to return to work and then they had two negative specimens collected May 9th and May 26th. Now, this, is a, this was an important criteria that Nevada had set up when trying to, to look for reinfection cases, is they wanted the negative testing in between. They didn't want something where somebody was tested one month and then three months later, they still test positives. They, they really wanted those negative uh, testing in between as a, as a key criteria. And then on May 28th, after their second negative test, they developed a fever, cough, shortness of breath. Um, you know, and what was interesting about this one is it was worse than previously experienced. Uh, interestingly, a co-inhabitant was unwell at the time, and I'll talk more about that in a second. And then on May 31st and June 5th, uh, they were evaluated urgent care, um, went to the emergency, and um, was in there for about three or four days. And while they were in there, um, they were tested uh, for SARS-CoV-2. They were positive again. Uh, they definitely spoke with the infection prevention, talked about the previous positive status, had, had antibody testing done at this time, of which they were positive. They were negative for flu. And the, uh, the RNA was sent to Nevada State Public Health Laboratory for genes, I think, or that uh, nasal swab. And what was really interesting was the co-inhabitant was tested on June 5th, and they were positive as well. Now, one of the questions I'm probably going to get on this, well, did you compare their specimen to um, this case, this reinfection? And unfortunately, that answer is no. Once again, it goes down to, you know, this wasn't a study. This is real time during a pandemic, the dumpster fire going on, tons of specimens coming in. And uh, this, I forget what testing was used to uh, give a positive result for this co-inhabitant, but it was not available for retesting. So a timeline of events, uh, this is from the, the paper in Lancet Infectious Diseases, uh, and just essentially here for completeness, you can see about the, you know, the symptom onset, the, the first positive resolution, negative testing, and then the, the second onset testing along with the IgM and IgG testing. And this is another summary of some of the testing, but there's, there's an important aspect to this, okay? So those of you that might be involved in public health or in SARS-CoV testing or sequencing um, can see the CT value of 35.24 here and 35.31 at, uh, at the two different times of um, testing. And what's significant about this is for many of us now sequencing SARS-CoV-2, we're using, say, a tiled amplicon approach on the Arctic protocol, if you have a specimen that's around 35 CT, you're really not going to get significant sequence from that. It's kind of like you, you have really good success below a, 30, uh, below a value of 30 CT, and between 30 and 35, it's kind of iffy um, as to how much, if you're going to get like greater than 90, 95% uh, reference coverage of the consensus assembly. And then here you have two specimens that are 35, above 35. And this is one of these things where, you know, luck favors the prepared because uh, Nevada State Public Health Laboratory is working with the university, and the university was actually doing kind of a, a study on a larger group of about 190 specimens, of which these were just two of them. Uh, they, they were able to afford to do a more, what I would call, Cadillac approach to sequencing. So that sequencing summary is seen um, right here, and the reference for it is for in the journal Genetics and Genomics. So this was later published for genomic surveillance and uh, patients looking at a uh, specific RNA-dependent RNA polymerase gene. Um, but it really was a, a Cadillac approach to sequencing, uh, where Paul Hartley, who was at the University of Nevada, um, Reno, uh, used a quite complex protocol, which involved taking the specimen, uh, ribosomal RNA depletion to get rid of uh, most of the human ribosomal RNA ribosomal RNA, uh, DNA's treatment to remove all DNA, then there was a ligation amplification followed by a SARS-CoV-2 enrichment, and then Illumina sequencing, um, I think it was probably on NXSeq. But you could see this detailed protocol diagram here, several steps. This is a lot more expensive than what you would normally do in a public health laboratory, hence um, you don't really see this type of approach in a public health laboratory for routine surveillance. Uh, but it was really, really thorough and allowed us to get 
greater than 90% reference coverage for both of these specimens with really high CT values. And, and this was definitely key for the study. And if we move on to the bioinformatics, um, so I got brought in on this uh, study you know, over the summer. It's really one of these neat stories of public health or public health community is really great. And the bioinformaticist, and I was chatting with Kelly Okerson from Utah, and he was asking, you know, why does, uh, why aren't there any Nevada sequences in PSA right then? So I called up Mark. I'm like, Mark, where's all your sequences? And he's like, do you have time to jump on a call? And so we um, got on a call. I talked about these 190 specimens. And then he said, oh, yeah, we, we think we have a potential reinfection case. I'm like, what did you say? And, uh, you know, we, we quickly jumped into that and looked at it. And as luck would have it, I was also working that summer on a SARS-CoV-2 tutorial for U.S. public health laboratories utilizing CLC Jim's workbench. In your PDF, there'll be this link to some of those resources. And, you know, this um, protocol that I was working on the tutorial was focused on artificial amplicon approaches. But what was really nice about the way that the software worked um, for these types of analysis, it was very easy to modify for metagenomics analysis. So I just kind of had to, to, to tweak the protocol a little bit and already had it ready. And that protocol can be seen here in a lot of detail. And it may look overwhelming, but, you know, this is, um, if you go through and, and you learn how to, you know, invest the time in, you know, a specific software platform, um, these things become relatively straightforward. But the, the thing to point out here is, you know, there there is no one best bioinformatics solution for everything. You know, I may be a, a cloud evangelist in, in my day job of bioinformatics, but I'm not a, a bioinformatics, I guess, snob, you could say. I want to use the best tool for the job, uh, whatever job I have it, um, uh, that has to be done. And, you know, at this time I was working on the tutorial, you know, we have a bioinformatics environment that's going to, assist me very quickly in a publication, um, you know, because I had to get this analysis done. This is gonna be a very, very high profile uh, paper because there is no publications on it yet. I want to make sure that I wasn't making any mistakes. You know, all of us that have done a lot of coding have made a mistake at one time in our life or another with coding. I knew that I could, with a commercial application, uh, trust the analysis for this. Um, I also knew that very quickly I could generate publication quality images because you know when they brought up this reinfection case, I knew there was going to be an expiration date onto this, on this as to how hot a topic it was going to be. Now it was a very hot topic last summer, and you know today nobody really thinks twice about reinfection. Um, also, you know this software solution at the time you know allowed me to export a lot of common formats for sharing, whether it was VCF or BAM. You know, the assemblies, I could very quickly generate that supplemental data for the publication. And then it also made it very easy, you know, when you think about um, science, you're supposed to give enough information on publication for something to be reproducible. I was very easily able to package everything up and freely share it so that others could reproduce the analysis. Um, another interesting thing in this, this whole process, and a side note, is a lot of you, you know, are familiar with the MetArchive and BioArchive right now and think of it as a great way to get data out early. Um, well, you can get rejected from BioArchive and MetArchive, okay? We did. Um, so we, we struggled for two weeks to get a preprint out in some form. And BioArchive, MetArchive, we got rejected. Um, they actually said that uh, they felt that it was better to submit this to a peer-reviewed journal. In other words, they didn't want to touch the topic given the, the controversy that it might want to cause. Um, and it, it was unfortunate because in that two weeks that we spent trying to get a preprint out um, somewhere, uh, the Hong Kong story came out, I think, about 24 to 48 hours before ours finally made it into the press or a preprint. So we're the first uh, documented U.S. case as a result. Okay, so getting into the, the analysis of these genomes, it, it was pretty straightforward. Um, you know, this is the, the output from the, the uh, CLC Genomics Workbench. We have our reference sequence. We have our case A and case B, where case A is the, the first uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, case B is the, the second uh, infection. And, you know, it was pretty obvious right from the beginning. At first, you know, we were able to see we had pretty good coverage. Now, this doesn't, when you, when you look at these BAM alignments here and the, and the coverage where you can see the kind of the blue, light blue, green 
uh, area of this figure for the alignments. You can see this doesn't look like an Arctic tiled amplicon. You can see there's definitely some areas that are favored more than others in their coverage. And this is just the nature of that enrichment or depletion enrichment and limited amplification protocol. But for all the variants that we use for the analysis, they're all covered quite thoroughly. And what was really nice, and you could see in this diagram how you have both shared variants and then variants that are unique for each uh, viral strain that this individual is infected with. And if you go into the details here, um, and this was really nice where you, you know, we could look at each uh, base, we could look at the type of variant, you know, the reference, it predominantly C to T, which is what you'd expect in, in this type of uh, viral evolution. Um, you know, even looking at the ratios of forward versus reverse, so we're trying to control for any technical variation. But we saw that there were, um, you know, 11 base differences between case A and case B, you know, and of these 11 differences, four of them were in genome B that matched the ancestral genome. Um, and likewise, the, the reverse for the, the A. And what's really, really nice about this is that if I go back one slide again, in order, if you're thinking about, is this just a lingering case? You know, did they have it and then it just, you know, kind of died down and sprang back up? And that's why, is, is this, are we looking at like an evolution of a virus over a couple months? We kind of ruled that out pretty quickly because if you had to go from case A to case B, if you're looking at the things that are unique to case B, yeah, you could have picked up these other mutations. But the thing was that there was, uh, you know, at least four mutations here where the case A variant had to revert back to wild type and then acquire seven additional mutations. And this we found to be, I think, um, a, vanishing, a vanishingly remote possibility uh, at the time is how we were justifying it. Now, one of the, the funnier conversations I had at the very beginning, and this might have been the, the very first time I chatted with Mark and his team there at um, uh, Nevada State Public Health Laboratory, um, you, know, as you know, you always have to be a skeptic about things, and then you always try to think about what's the most logical reason to explain this result. So my, my first question, Mark, was, you know, how do you know you just didn't mix up those specimens? And that's where you can insert the awkward silence into the conversation. And it's like, okay, we have to do something to, uh, to look into that and make sure we didn't do that. So Nevada State Public Health Laboratory, in an extremely thorough analysis, they went back and they found material from the extracted total nucleic acid testing um, from both cases. They found and went back and got the aliquots given to, se to the sequencing core for both specimens. And they even went in and emptied the wells from the extraction plates. So they still had the extraction plates left over. They went into the individual wells and just rinsed them out and used that material. And they provided it to the Washaw County Sheriff's Forensic Sciences Division. And, you know, you think about this as, uh, um, you know, CSI Washoe County, where you're asking them to determine if the same individual provided the specimens for these two different cases and, you know, this uh, during a pandemic. So they were super excited to do this, and they did a phenomenal job and turned data around really quickly. And this, just a, this isn't the actual data here on the right. It's just a representative of this type of fingerprinting that they're doing. Um, but, you know, they're basically showed that all the samples that were uh, given to them came from the same human being. I think the, they said the chances of the samples being from two different people was one in 54 septillion, which is uh, 10 to the 24th probability or chance. Okay, so now, you know, we, we talked about 2020, we talked about this reinfection, uh, reinfection and now we can think about, you know, it's, it's 2021 now. And, you know, have things improved? Are we doing better? Um, so if we look at the status, what is the status now of sequencing? Well, you can see sequencing looks like we're on an exponential curve here, right? So it looks like right around uh, January 1st, uh, things really took off. And, you know, this was intentional. Um, and a lot of it was driven by variants, as we'll talk about in a second, was I think it was at the time that was when B117, right around December, started to get a lot of publicity. Uh, U.S. public health knew that it was behind. And so there was there began, and it began earlier than January because things had to get in place to see this kind of result in January, but major investments in sequencing. And this includes equipment and reagents, 
uh, staff training for weapons training, additional staff being brought in, and biomedics training and resources. Another fantastic thing that's, that's you know, we talk about silver linings in a pandemic is that the level of industry, government, and academic collaboration has been enormous, okay? So if you look at the, um, you know, submissions to GISAID and NCBI and who's submitting them, you know, it's not just public health laboratories. It's not just academic groups. There's huge industry partners uh, providing specimens through contracts to the federal government. So this is really, really encouraging to see. And then also, I think, um, you know, even though NGS activities have been around in public health for a while, I don't know if there had been a complete buy-in by a lot of, um, you know, people in public health for the value of NGS and bioinformatics. And I think this pandemic really drove home the point of how important NGS and bioinformatics is for that 21st century public health, uh, you know, laboratory, that, that this is the future of, of public health. So that's the status, you know, what, what's the rationale for sequencing right now? Um, well, at the national and state level in the U.S., it's, it's mainly uh, two things, the emergence of important new strains and trends after public health interventions like vaccination. And, you know, we're continuing with cluster and transmission surveillance, but, you know, the, the new strains and the vaccine escapees are the, the dominant activities right now of what people are interested in. Um, two examples of this. I just mentioned a second ago about B117. Uh, this is data I just pulled straight off of outbreak.info yesterday. Um, for those of you that haven't been to outbreak.info, I highly recommend it. The data there is fantastic. Uh, but this is the uh, B117 prevalence over time worldwide. And you can see right here, um, right around that November timeframe going into December is when B117 started taking off. And this is a big concern because, you know, it's shown uh, evidence of being more transmissible than other variants and how quickly it's taken over uh, a lot of the viral population in different parts of the world. And we could see this, you know, I, I work closely with a lot of public health laboratories uh, nationally, and we can look at the, uh, you know, percentage of new cases and what variants they are. And B117 is definitely in, in the lead right now. And, and we know about this because of the NGS and bioinformatics activities. Um, but, you know, things that we're worried about are like this, uh, you know, B1617.2. Uh, you know, this is uh, the, the original B.1.617 was first identified in India, and now it's spreading. And here we could see some early data um, as to how quickly this is spreading. And, and I don't think yet we really know the significance of this lineage um, and what its implications are uh, for transmissibility or for vaccine escape, but, you know, this is why we do the NGS and bioinformatics, so we could identify these variants, identify those that are spreading and growing, and very quickly then bring them into a lab and study the implications for therapeutics, for vaccine, et cetera. So this is a slide that I showed just a couple months ago at a presentation where I was, um, this was, I think, in January, and I was kind of talking about what I thought was kind of looking at the crystal ball, what was going on, and I thought that, you know, the first quarter of 2021 20, uh, was going to be mainly focused on variants, especially S-gene variants, and that we were looking at, I gave some headlines from right around December, talking about the variants coming out, and I thought that in the second quarter, we were mainly going to be focused on variants escaping vaccine response, and then I didn't know what was going to happen couldn't see far enough into the third quarter. Um, well, I still can't see that far into the third quarter, but I think this variance escaping uh, vaccine response is kind of playing out. So if you look at a lot of publications from April talking about uh, vaccine escapees and, uh, you know, given the, the vaccine efforts right now, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of effort in this area. Um, let's see if there's anything else. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping for an uneventful third and fourth quarter. So maybe this question mark means uh, things start dying down. Uh, we can all hope. So at this point, I'd like to, to give some acknowledgments before handing things over to life. Um, you know, obviously the, the crew at Nevada State Public Health Laboratory are phenomenal. It was great working with them. I still work with them. Um, they're, they're definitely on, on the cutting edge of you know, trying to have a real-time SARS-CoV-2 genomic surveillance there. Uh, the team at University of Nevada, Reno, was fantastic. And then there's uh, some additional collaborators from health departments 
and the sheriff's office that helped establish um, some key data for this study. And then two groups I definitely want to give a shout out for, and I recommend you check these out on uh, when you get the download the PDF. But one of them is the Spheres Group, which is a uh, large industry, academic, uh, government kind of consortium here in the U.S. focused on SARS-CoV-2 surveillance, and, and hopefully this will extend into other pathogens as this we transition out of this pandemic. Um, and there are some of the the links for that, and then also the staffb.org. Group. So STAFB stands for State Public Health Bioinformaticists. And this is a group of bioinformaticists that work at state, local, and federal level for public health in the U.S. And they're very highly collaborative um, in developing, you know, Docker containers, workflows for different workflow managers, um, et cetera. So they're, they're really a, a great group there. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to, to Leif Schauser, the Associate Director for Global Project Management. Um, at Kaijin for biomedical genomes. Thanks, Joel. So that uh, that was really an amazing story. You you can tell here it's really fantastic how how you managed to get this uh, wrap together. Um, so I'm I'm going to follow up uh, a little bit here with the part two on what uh, we've been doing um, going into this uh, pandemic. Um, so I will talk a little bit about a kit that uh, we from the bioinformatics uh, division encouraged our panel developers to develop early on in, in a year and a half ago, like very early on in, in March 20. And they took that and, and uh, have uh, had a couple of iterations on that. And this is the newest panel I want to talk about. And then uh, we have uh, developed a, a service uh, to that, that does the bioinformatics. Uh, and then in the end, I'll talk a little bit about the bio, uh, about the workbench that Joel already mentioned. So um, so this uh, this new panel has been uh, released uh, in, in uh, first of April. So it's still rather new and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an evolution of the panel that was uh, previously available for the last uh, half year or so. Uh, and and this one is just simply updated on on all uh, parameters that matter, especially on hands-on time and speed, and and, and also on uniformity and coverage. <clears throat> so that's what drives this uh, uh, this uh, kit. And you can see the the more specifics here. So it's it's not just uh, a uh, another iteration of the same panel, but it has many more amplicons and and uh, dramatically. Uh, uh, less hands-on time, so much, much faster to process. And it's very automation-friendly, so you can run many samples in parallel. So um, we developed uh, a service because uh, what Joel showed you about the CLC Genomics Workbench wasn't exactly what people are looking for in the surveillance community. Uh, they are not really researchers. They, they need things to go very uh, fast, uh, often at a very high throughput. And what they're really interested in is not the variants here and there, but they are interested in what strain are we looking at? Is this uh, the B1117 or, or is it another one? So with that in mind, we, we developed this service um, and we support uh, the, the Kaya-seq panels, but also the ion AmpliSeq one and the, the Arctic on Illumina and Arctic on Oxford Nanopore. And there's some reference here in your PDF, so that you can uh, you can learn more and and and, and contact us <coughs> there. Um, so what does it do? So it uh, it really gives you the whole advantage of a cloud-based service. Uh, we chose Amazon uh, Web Service as a back backend, and um, that takes out the whole uh, question of scaling up your own hardware. And because it's a bioinformatics service, you also don't have to hire new bioinformaticians or virologists, to, to experts to, to be really, uh, you're really independent of any expert uh, resources here and can draw on this service. And it's fully automated, so it will take your FASTQ files and hand back the reports and in the meantime, provide all the quality control that uh, are asked for. Um, and it's easy to integrate into your existing uh, LIMP systems. Um, there are uh, 
facilities to sharing and communicating with public health so that they can really get the consensus sequence and, and make that part of GISAID, for example. Um, but also very interestingly, uh, you can uh, view all the results uh, for free with the CLC Genomics Workbench uh, as part of the service. So you download the results and uh, you can look at the bump file yourself and the variant calls and, and see if everything is as you expect. Um, so we are uh, maintaining this and updating it uh, on a global, on, on a daily basis all over the globe. And it's, uh, it's pricing based on a sample base, so it really scales with your business. So this is the report that uh, we produce as a PDF. And, and uh, the, the header information here can be a logo and uh, uh, contact details can be, can be specified to your uh, organization. So it's fully flexible there. And then there are sample uh, details uh, specifying when when was this run, uh, what was the name of the sample, what was the name of the workflow, <clears throat> and um, then there is uh, different uh, tables which give you a high level overview which lineage and clade did we see in the sample, uh, and did the QC metrics uh, pass, uh, and and the more uh, QC summary here and that gene-centric view also that you can see that the coverage of the genes and in interest uh, was, was, was passing all QCs. So um, what really happens then uh, under the hood is that uh, anyone with a sequencing machine uh, can uh, subscribe to the service and uh, give us access to uh, monitor a folder uh, where the fast queues are uh, output from the sequencing machine, and we will automatically monitor that folder and grab the fast, the new fast queue files that are coming overnight or, or at any time, and upload them to the service. Um, perform the bioinformatics uh, analysis there that um, does the strain typing and and the consensus sequencing uh, sequence generation. And then uh, we will download all the results uh, after when it's, once it's performed within the next uh, 10, 10, 15 minutes. And you can have uh, uh, the results at your own computer. <clears throat> and there's uh, the PDF report I showed earlier. But there's also structured text in XML format that you can integrate into the LIMS systems. There's variant files in VCF formats, um, summary files in Excel format for the QC. The consensus FASTA file, uh, one per genome, which is the, the main result you can say for, for uploading to GISAID, for example. And finally, there's a whole package of uh, CLC format that allow you to open these, uh, these uh, documents uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and inspect the, the results in, in, in CLC. So that's the BAM files and, and others. So here's a quick uh, schematic of how the general workflow looks like. Uh, FASTQ is trimmed, uh, taxonomic profiling to remove the human reads. Um, the reads are then uh, mapped to the reference and, and the consensus is constructed and, and variants are called. And then we do the lineage uh, and clade an analysis. So, um, here are some the key features. I already talked about that, but uh, in the interest of time, I'd rather give us some uh, question time here. Um, this is what it looks like. You already saw that from Joel. Uh, when you open the CLC object in the results file, you can really deep dive into uh, which uh, amino acid changes have been caused by which reads in the mapping. And um, if you have uh, a license for CLC, you can do uh, the, the phylogenetics analysis also <laughs> to, to really see where your cluster looks like in, in, in the local outbreak, for example. So um, with that, uh, I'll hand over to the moderators. Uh, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Schauser. As a reminder to webinar participants, if you do have a question, please type it into the Q&A box in the control panel. And before we begin our Q&A, we'd like to ask attendees to take a moment after the webinar has ended 
to give us feedback by taking our exit survey. Um, okay, so our first question, uh, Joel, is for you. Um, so is it that a totally different strain is needed for reinfection, or is it that the virus uh, stays endogenous like HIV and then becomes resistant as it mutates, uh, like uh, indolent TB, which flares up for reasons uh, like the patient becoming immunocompromised? Well, uh, not a virologist. I'm a public health scientist and biomedic specialist. Uh, what I'd say here is that, you know, the, the evidence that we showed was that we did have two different viral strains and that the probability that it became kind of dormant and then flared up again, I think, uh, was quite improbable uh, just because of the need for four of the mutations to revert back to the reference sequence uh, like that. And I, I I think that's a crazy small probability of something like that happening. Okay. Um, and so how do you think that the investments uh, that are currently being made in SARS-CoV-2 sequencing and bioinformatics uh, will affect public health labs going forward um, once we get past the pandemic? Yeah, I guess this is, you know, the, the big question or, or the, the great hope is that you know we have all these investments now in public health and, and we've seen the announcements from the the current administration on the funding that's going in and we really want this to be a um, investment in the future of public health not just necessarily a response to the pandemic so i would expect to see this impact all areas of public health um, in particular you know ngs and biomedics have had a large role in foodborne surveillance for quite a few years now but what we really want to see are the impacts in you know, healthcare-acquired infections, um, tuberculosis, Legionella, other pathogens. And then also with the pandemic, most public health labs now have gotten their first um, real taste of what you'd call, what I call metagenomics, where direct specimen sequencing, even though it is targeted amplification. And we'd like to see this kind of be expanded into other viral pathogens, or you could use it as an early detection system in different animal populations or in environmental uh, sequencing. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a enormous potential for this investment right now to you know, push public health 10, 15 years into the future of where it would have been without this type of investment in the pandemic. Um, so Life, we have a question for you. Um, if someone has a CLC genomics workbench, uh, do they need to purchase a plugin to analyze SARS-CoV-2? Um, and if they do, uh, how much is the cost of that? No, so that depends what you want to do. Uh, what I presented here was a service that is built uh, around the CLC workbench, which we run in the cloud. Uh, but if you want to just analyze the SARS-CoV-2, it's actually covered in your license already. There's a workflow, and that workflow lies in the biomedical genomics analysis plugin, which is for free, so you can just download it from the workbench. Uh, that workflow, however, will not give you the clade and and and, uh, and strain uh, annotations. So, uh, so you would have to generate uh, it, it generates a faster consensus for you, and you would have to figure out yourself how to get that uh, to next clade and, and 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 next strain. And just to follow up on that, does the CLC Genomics Workbench require a license? Um, I believe you answered that, but uh, just yes, to make that clear, uh, yes, it it does. Yes, it does. Okay. Great. Um, and how often does the uh, COVE-2 Insights Service update the Pangolin and Nextclade databases for uh, sequence annotation? Yes. So we run this as an automatic update of the, of the reference data every night. So that's a daily update, just to make sure that we have the latest uh, strain typings in there. And could you tell us a bit about uh, the specifics of how you do uh, variant calling in the Kaijin pipeline, um, the tools that use the, the variant filtering um, and, and uh, things like that? Yeah, so we have three variant callers uh, at our disposal uh, in, in the workbench, and, and we use the appropriate ones for, for the, the low variant uh, frequency, uh, frequency caller there to, to call the variants. And then we we filter at various uh, um, cutoffs to give you a, a lower frequency uh, bucket and the, the very common uh, variants that are in your sample to, to con construct the consensus. And um, is the result of the SARS-related genomic analysis connected to Omicsoft or IPA? No, 
it's not it's completely uh, separate products and uh, for ipa you would uh, use typically rna expression data so that's more uh, more host related uh, uh, response data that you would look at uh, you could use the clc genomics workbench to also derive those from uh, from uh, host uh, samples so then you would need to do rna extraction and, and do an rna expression profiling and uh, send that data to ipa or omicsoft and then you can uh, see what the host response has been there's lots of papers uh, in the scientific literature that do exactly that and uh, what about vir viral variants that are not uh, previously described in the literature? How does the software deal with those? Yes, yeah, so they will be discovered and described, uh, and then the the as, and they will would be flagged as as private uh, variants for that uh, individual and uh, not seen before uh, in in any clade, but it will still get a clade annotation of the strain it was derived derived from. Just. Right. Um, Joel, how many positive specimens do you have to have uh, in order to sequence? Uh, do you have to sequence? I'm sorry for uh, to have adequate surveillance. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, I think right now you could probably say that we're under sequencing, but we're getting close to that uh, appropriate level. Um, you know, ideally in a perfect world, you'd want all positive specimens sequenced. And I think some of these state public health laboratories, I think Utah. Uh, public health laboratory I heard from yesterday, uh, you know, they're they're being tasked now with sequencing every positive specimen. But I, I would like to think that you definitely have to get out of the single digits and up into the double digits of the um, percent of positive cases being sequenced. And it's probably more a matter of do you want to be um, proactive or reactive, right? If, the, the less you sequence, uh, the more reactive you're going to be, the more you're only going to see things when they become dominant versus, you know, you could set criteria for what is the, the type of behavior that you would like to see for something um, that you would consider important and want to keep an eye on. And, you know, you can make that criteria. You have a lot more options there that, that the more positive specimens you're sequencing. Uh, Life, perhaps uh, you know the answer to this question. Is the data uh, that's generated through Kaijin software available on public repositories or through other uh, Kaijin software um, for researchers who aren't doing sequencing themselves? Well, not automatically. You would have to submit that data. So you can submit the, the raw reads to SRA, for example, or you can submit the FASTA file uh, to... Um, to GISAID, and, and that's typically done uh, by, by researchers and, and surveillance uh, on, on, on national level or on, on, on local level. Uh, and we, we do have a, a tool for automatic uh, GISAID upload because that becomes cumbersome doing that one by one. So you can bulk upload uh, with it with a tool that we provide with the service. Great, thank you. Um, Joel, when the pandemic winds down, uh, do you think that sequencing SARS-CoV-2 will remain a priority, um, and should it? Yes. <laughs> I say yes, and I, I think, you know, if you, if you look at the, the U.S. right now, I think the, the latest numbers are 60% of the adult population have received one or more, at least one uh, vaccine dose, right? So I think in the U.S., um, you know, we, we've definitely reduced the viral load and we're going to see less variants originating in the U.S. But if you think if we look at the international community and things that are happening, like in India, there's still going to be uh, parts of the world where the viral load is going to be, you know, by the population viral load is going to be so great that you're going to continuously see variants emerge from there. And we're really going to need to keep an eye on those variants and see not if, but when they're introduced to the U.S., where are they and, and what measures do we have to take in order to, um, you know, mitigate uh, the spread, so. Um, Life, could you tell us uh, at all uh, whether, which, sorry, larger laboratories or universities or medical centers um, are using uh, your software um, to, to analyze SARS-CoV-2? Is that something that you can tell us? Yeah, that, we have thousands and thousands of users and, uh, you know, all big pharmaceutical companies are our customers, but also most universities are uh, at, at one lab or the other. And, and many uh, public health labs are also 
uh, but so so I, I can't name them all here, but there's many. Um, so the, right. if you want a quick uh, look in the literature, you can you can go to Google Scholar and, and look what CLC Genomics uh, Workbench is cited for. And then there's, uh, I don't know, 25,000 papers out there. So that's basically all universities in the world. All right. Fair enough. Um, Joel, um, could you tell us uh, what would you say are the major advantages and perhaps maybe if there are any disadvantages uh, to the Kaijin software that you noticed when you were working with it? Well, like I said, it, there, there is no one bioinformatics platform that is going to meet all your needs. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I have access to a, to a lot of different tools. So for me, the, the advantage for CLC Genomics Workbench um, you know, as I outlined in the talk, or how quickly I could get publication quality uh, data results, uh, supplemental uh, figure or supplemental data packages, et cetera, out there. Um, I think what you'll see from the public health laboratories that are using CLC Genomics Workbench in the U.S. is that you know some of them don't have any bioinformaticists on staff, um, but they can very quickly utilize the software, integrate it into a QC management system, and have a lot of success doing bioinformatics without being a bioinformaticist. Um, the, the drawbacks, which you know, it, it, this has to do with every commercial package, is that you know there, there's an upfront cost, which you know some people um, that that's an impediment having that upfront cost, having to have uh, you know bring on new software to have to deal with your IT. Um, but, you know, that, that you're going to see with any commercial package. And then some bio, you know, the, the bioinformatics community quite often won't like, uh, you know, kind of closed box solutions. But I think uh, from some of the, the, the recent work I did working with CLC Jones Workbench, there's ways of bringing in, if you have the server product, some of your own algorithms and really opening up uh, the options for the different modules that you could bring into workflows. So... I think they're definitely addressing that. Great. Um, I believe we've run through all of the questions in our queue, uh, so I will wrap it up there for today. We'd like to thank Joel Savinsky, Life Schauser, and our sponsor, Kyogen. As a reminder, please look out for the pop-up survey after you log out to provide your feedback. If you missed any part of this webinar or wish to listen to it again, a link to an archived version will be emailed to all attendees. Thank you for joining us for this genome webinar.